1: Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
2: Hello, everybody, and welcome to the second series of The Human Podcast, a place to hear extraordinary human stories that celebrate the limitless potential of human beings. This second series is dedicated to our very human stories of grief and loss, because when you dig down into the core matter of these experiences, what you actually discover is possibly our most unobserved and uncelebrated capacity for courage, resilience and love. Grief requires an expansiveness of self that stretches us to a fourth dimension The extraordinary thing is that we can contain it live with it and that somehow the human heart can hold it all so if the world is feeling like a dark or difficult place join us and let your heart be ignited by the fire of the human spirit so today it is our absolute privilege to be joined by the sensational Dr Leila Hussain Layla is a BAFTA-nominated presenter, psychotherapist and internationally celebrated activist campaigning to end female genital mutilation. Layla is an FGM survivor who, in her own words, is trying to live her bravest life. In this series, we are exploring the vast and different ways in which human beings experience and live with their experiences of grief and loss, which of course are not just limited to death and bereavement. Layla is a leading global voice, breaking centuries of silence on the unique type of grief that millions of women and girls all over the world live with every day as survivors of FGM. FGM is when part or all of the female genitalia are cut and removed, and in many countries it can be committed on baby girls as young as one week old all the way through to their early adulthood. Layla, you have said, FGM is about oppressing women, it's about oppressing women's bodies, and it's about controlling women's sexuality. It is about control, and it is a global issue. Now, I'm going to tell you here, in Layla's words, what happened to her. It was a very sunny morning. The sun was beaming from my window. I woke up that morning, and people were cooking, in our privileged Somali family. What made this day strange was there were caterers... And I wondered what the celebration was, because it wasn't my birthday. Then an eight-year-old came and told me what was going to happen to me, at which point I started to have an out-of-body experience and I could hear my sister screaming like an animal being massacred. So I ran, but I didn't know what I was running from. I was a child, with fear inside my body. They grabbed me, pinned me down and my clothes were taken off. My legs were spread apart. I was pinned down by women I trusted, my aunties and my family friends. But my mother wasn't there. Before I knew it, a sharp knife was taken to my body, and this was done by a doctor. Then I was taken to a room and given gifts. But I didn't get the chocolates, because I had made too much fuss. At the age of seven, I had just experienced female genital mutilation. Now today, more than 200 million girls and women worldwide have experienced FGM. Every 11 seconds, a girl undergoes FGM, with three million girls at risk of it every year. Now, Leila, whilst this very particular and complex experience of grief in your life has been defining, I know there are other experiences of loss that you have learnt to live with day by day alongside this. So it is really just the greatest privilege to have this time with you to get up close to the indescribably brave and for many people life-changing way in which you talk about these experiences and you know before before we embark on on the wider aspects of our conversation today I just thought we should maybe start with seeing how you are today
1: my love (laughs) Hi Jess. Hello. First of all thank you for having me and asking me to come and have this conversation with you. It's an Uh, honor. It's It's an honor Leila. It's an absolute privilege that I can come and have this conversation. How am I doing? You know this is interesting times you know and it's interesting that we're talking about grief and loss and right now in the world we are surrounded by it Mm. and and I'm that's why I'm so happy that we are creating spaces where we have having this conversation so I feel very grateful actually that's how I feel today and I when I woke up feeling like that today even I was tired and a lot is going on I um over the weekend actually I spent some time uh with the um with the uh a group of non-documented migrants mm. uh, I don't like using the word illegal immigrants no human being is illegal I hate that term when people oh, use god, that oh god me too and this is uh, actually um, some work, actually, which is actually Choose, to, choose to Love actually supports this work. Yeah, and, of course. <laughs> and I was running a an emotional well being support group and teaching them about well being. And but when you are in that kind of space where people don't don't have basic basic things, mm. but, so I went in. I was called in to support them, but I walked away feeling supported. Uh, by them which is really interesting and 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 since this was Sunday but they had been at the forefront of all my thoughts and gratefulness it's it's that uh so yeah yeah so I'm very grateful to be here (laughs) what are you feeling grateful for today Leila I'm grateful that we can have this conversation I'm grateful for my daughter her health my mother's you know in the kitchen cooking away while she's tidying up usually that would have annoyed me the fact that she just went into my kitchen and started (laughs) tidying up my cupboard but I'm so grateful for that because I was listening to conversations of people who have lost their families haven't seen their families for 16 years 20 years Mm -hmm. and actually being very grateful instead of going oh my god you know you guys are making noise it was like no I'll go to my bedroom actually uh by the time I'm done with this call there'll be a nice meal cooked by my mother waiting for me so I'm definitely grateful for those things that we don't actually name and say out loud. Uh, and I'm very mindful of that.
2: No, Leila, um, you know, I've following your work, reading your work, watching the amazing talks that you you give of which there are so many online and I really encourage our listeners to go and, and seek them out because they're just extraordinary. I've been so struck by hearing, hearing the language of grief and loss mm-hmm. Um just absolutely within the fabric of the feelings that you have had in in terms of you know coming to terms with what happened to you Mm -hmm. because my god so much is lost for girls and women who have undergone FGM and and I just wonder if you could talk to us a little bit more about this
1: yeah I what makes this violence because I like to call it for what it is so uh I don't want to use the word interesting either what makes it so even more volatile it's the way it's done maybe get people to understand you are violated publicly by people you trust the most so you are left you feel the grief you feel the loss but you are told you've gained something can you imagine as a child that confusion you're told you're now part of a special group. You will go to the best schools. You'll be married to the right. So the intention is that you've gained something, but you cannot name, even acknowledge the loss you are feeling. And there's a physical loss and there's a, a loss of trust with people you love the most. Uh, and, and again, you know, when, you know, my mother organized this for us, me, my sister, my cousin, you know, my mom would pick women she trusted the most. I mean, it's very horrible cycle to be in. You know, you choose women she trusted to be part of that process. Uh, mothers are not usually there. And each time I made a recognition, there was a grieving process that I had to go through. Mm. Uh, and 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 so yeah, I don't know if that answers the question, but I think um, the loss comes in different forms, whether it's physical, emotional, socially. I mean, but this is done so publicly to a child um, and people always say, oh, you know, women have undergone this, never come forward. I'm like, yeah, there's a reason they're not coming forward because it was done so publicly. No one reacted. So you think it's OK. Why should you make a fuss about this? It's violence being dressed up as love. Absolutely.
2: I mean, I wonder, Leila, what that does in terms of reorganizing your relationship between love and mm. trauma. Yeah
1: it's uh, even as I talk about it now it's like wow I cannot believe that's you know it's the definition of love it's so different uh, especially with me uh, if I speak about my experience outside of that I have a very protective loving mother literally there you know like I said to you, she's in the kitchen cooking for me because she found out I didn't eat properly for the last few days so she's very caring like that what it's done to me, it's. I went through a couple of stages of my life where I was confused by love, but it always involved a bit of pain. Mm. It was pain and abandonment because I felt abandoned by my mother that day because she wasn't there. So there's that sense of. So for me, love represented pain and abandonment. Mm. But I'm also receiving this other love, which is loving, safety taken care of so it's weird but when it came to love I was on that spectrum all Mm. the time but the 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 pain the physical pain and abandonment was a current theme and and it was something that I had to learn you know while being in therapy me training as a therapist and I'm still learning and 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 it's something I'm trying to the way I deal with it I guess Uh, one it's been loving to myself and being kind to myself but also breaking that cycle with my daughter Mm. by teaching her that's not what love is Mm. you know when I tell her what happened to me she really is like taken back by it because she now knows her loving grandmother she doesn't know that woman that I'm talking about she knows this other woman who's like reformed you know who now doesn't believe in this so to her it's like really like grandma really had these views and I'm like yeah that was part of our journey Uh, She, she has a whole different a loving relationship with her grandma which doesn't involve physical harm um so i guess that makes me proud that we can there is a way out of this but again to do that there's a bit of work that needs to take place and, and 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 grieving it's part of that i it's taking me and i still really haven't reached uh uh that point where i really have grieved for myself Because, you know, in society, we're not allowed to do that. If you're alive and you're walking and you can breathe air, you shouldn't be grieving. You should be lucky. But I have yet to, you know, go to that top of the mountain and scream and cry. I think that's what I need to do at some point. I know I need to. And I need to do it for myself. Because that was a horrible experience that led to other terrible experiences. Because those other terrible experiences that happened later on in my life was a uh the foundation was set by that experience uh, and i'm you know if i give you an example i uh i've experienced sexual abuse as a child uh a family friend tried to rape me at the age of 13 but looking back on it when i worked with my therapist a message was sent to me at the age of seven that my body could be taken advantage of my body was always under attack as far as i'm but that message came through very early on and it was by people who I knew. So the idea, so for me, because I was always told violence doesn't happen in your family. It doesn't happen. So again, very confusing. So if someone's as long as someone says they're your family and they say they love you, you don't associate them with violence. That trauma was so devastating. It led to uh, 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 other people taking advantage, advantage because not one person in that incident said this was terrible. If somebody would have said to me, This is terrible, it shouldn't have happened to her, you know, I'm not saying you can prevent sexual abuse, but I might have, re- you know, reported it quite early or said something. Um, but um, it, it's it's all connected, very much connected.
2: I mean, you, you said something there about your mum and how her beliefs have changed. Mm. Um, you know it, it just made me wonder you know how your your activism um has changed or affected the relationships with your with your family yeah just
1: to give a bit of a context so I come from two grandfathers who are doctor, do, both doctors my mum's dad decided to do this his daughters my dad's side of the family did not cut their daughters
2: right so okay.
1: so you could see already so big and and you know Even like today, I was talking to a group of social workers and I said, it's not about class system. It's not about class system. It's not about your educational, you know, social you know, economics background. This is about controlling the body. Basically, two of my grandfathers, one chose to control his daughter's sexuality, even though he knew the implications. As a doctor, Mm -hmm. he knew the implications of what he was doing to her. So that was so my mom did it behind my father's back. So there was another betrayal that's happened uh, in this story um because she and she wanted to do the not the worst type so physically I didn't have what you would call the worst type you know where you remove everything you sew somebody together she wanted us to have what they call the type one type two which is the minor type because she wanted us to be accepted into these societies you know both my parents come from two of the biggest you know some of the biggest tribes in Somalia um so my family so it was divided Well, by the time I started campaigning, my mother's views already changed. And I'll tell you why. She became religious because we were cut because of our religion uh, uh, beliefs. We were Muslims and that's why we were cut. But my mom was not religious when she cut us. It was not religious. She was not religious at all. So she ended up, she ended up picking up the Quran herself and read it and realized there was no mention of this. And we come to England, we meet many other Muslim communities. We never even heard of this. And I remember the devastation. And she and my mother apologised. And, and, and I always say that to any, when violence like this happens amongst families, whereas FGM or any other form of violence, I think an apology goes a long way. Mm. It's part of the healing because for a very long time, everybody acted like nothing bad happened
0: mm. in that
1: villa, in that villa in Mogadishu. I mean, you can, just picture this, it's a massive villa, you know, with Range Rovers, surrounded by Range Rovers, you know, with a caterer. I mean, it's literally a five-star party uh, with lots of gifts. And everybody pretended. And I I always question people by saying, that's interesting. If this is so great and so brilliant, it's such an important day. How come we don't keep photos of our FGM day? No one keeps a photo of this day. Wow. Okay, where's the photos? We have photos of my wedding and birthdays but somehow she's giving me goosebumps all over it's just chilling observation yeah i'm like why because deep down we know it's wrong we know we're torturing a child but there's this you know and, and what i think my mom talked about i was lucky we went to therapy together because our relationship was really being impacted by this you know the fact that um i have a daughter now and I could not even bear my daughter having uh, an injection like that was traumatic for me. And I just kept picturing how does a mother, you know, organize something? And I could see there was a wedge coming in our relationship. And I was I remember training as a therapist at the time, um, my professor who happens to be, you know, an African-Nigerian woman who, by the way, reminds me of the women who cut me. That was a process me and my professor had to go through because I was so scared of her. And I couldn't know why until she sat me down and we processed. And I said, oh, my God, you look like my mom's sister who pinned me down that day. You know, but she taught me it's important. We will have these triggers and flashbacks, mm. but we need to process them. Anyway, this professor said to me, have you thought about have you ever heard your mother's story? Because, right. you know, I've been angry and pissed at her. But actually, I was like, no, I never even asked what happened to her. And when she told me her story, uh, briefly, my mother was actually cut twice, not once, twice, because a neighbor felt not enough was taken off. And when my mother told me this, all of a sudden, I wasn't sitting in front of my mother anymore. I was sitting in front of another victim Mm -hmm. or survivor of this. She literally became that person and finally understood why she wanted us to have the minor type because she was trying to protect us from because we found out she did it she told the whole family we had type three which is the worst type but she felt she could protect us by just making sure we had the smaller because she's not thinking about the psychological impact or what the violation she was just focused on the physical aspect For her was like I want them to urinate don't have problems with their period they can have sex that's it not thinking I'm going to ruin their relationships with women. I mean, you know, but luckily she went to therapy with me and our therapist helped us come to some sort of agreement when those negative feelings come up. I have to remember that she did try to protect me. She didn't have a choice. I had to accept her because I kept telling her she should have run away with me. That was my, and, and I had to remember the environment that I live in. Um, so I had to accept that was her reality And whenever we get to a negative place, we both focus on on, on her granddaughter, which is my daughter, Mm. that we broke that cycle because we can't go back and fix that now. We can't fix it. So we now focus on that. And my family, I mean, I will not have done this work without them, especially my mother. My mother has I think it's it's her way of being part of the work that I'm doing by supporting me. I remember when we were filming the documentary, the crew cut, she cooked for the crew a few times. It's her being part of it. And then for years, she would never come to any of my events. Mm. And I got really angry about it. I go, mom, you never come. You never come. And then she said to me, I don't like coming because whenever you talk about this, it's a reminder that I did that to you. And I never, I didn't realize that. Oh, Yeah. Yeah. So she attended one event two years ago which luckily all my all my colleagues knew she was coming they really created a safe space for her but she said I'll come once but I can't do it which I understood and I understand I can't even imagine as a mother when your child's constantly is a reminder of what you did she goes she respects what I do she supports what I do but she can't bear watching me speak because she knows she played a part in that pain that I experienced Uh, and also There's generational trauma to this. You know, my grandmother passing this on to my mother, my mother passing it on to me. And and the big work, the big job for me is to, and I know some of that, my daughter's already carrying it, but, you know, but I can step in and recognize and create a safe space for her and I to openly talk about this. Um, Absolutely. It's so, it's so much connected in order to deal with trauma you have to grieve you have to that is part of the process and for so long you know myself and many millions of women out there haven't even started our grievance because they've been told what happened to them was great it was love how the hell do you grieve love unless it's been broken you don't even have the language to describe it i oh,
2: know no, no. it may this you're saying this makes me think of there's a there's a moment in one of the brilliant I think it was the TED talk that I saw you do which I just anybody listening to this please go and look it up because it's absolutely extraordinary and there's a moment later when you talk about the girls um, of your generation who then discover know that you are told that you have also been cut and they say okay we can play with you now and yeah there's something around oh my the god kind of the normalization of this act amongst its own victims and you know I know that it wasn't until you were given a safe space to talk about this that you could really integrate and truly name what had happened Mm -hmm. to you because as you had said this experience of absolutely truly mutilating violence was was served to you dressed up as an Mm -hmm. act of love and, you know, I wonder what the process was for you in, in starting to be yeah. able to name it for what you knew it was inside your body.
1: And, and, and you know, the, that process involves grooming. We were all groomed into this. And grooming, it's a violation. So even that process is very violating. I'll give you, just to go back a little bit, when we were cut, me, my sister, my cousin, so we we're all in the same room, in our beds, I mean, we look like mini brides, by the way. They change us in these beautiful dresses. We have henna. Our hairs were braided the day before. So we look like mini brides. And we have these gifts on our lap. And then what happens? The three-year-old, the four-year-old who hasn't been cut are now sent to our room. So that three, four-year-old, what does she see? The gifts and dress like a bride. She doesn't know what happened four to five minutes ago. That's part of the grooming. So you're already wanting to be part of this you're feeling left out even though that wasn't my experience but I know majority of the women that was their experience because I was a kid who was in a diaspora when I was cut so I didn't have a clue but that's part of the grooming and the grooming now goes in so it goes deeper into the community which is my school I went to one of the best private schools in Somalia at the time because I was a diaspora kid there was always rumors that diaspora girls are not cut Mm. I didn't know this so I'm seven one of the girls comes and asks, do you know what's so disturbing about this? The fact that children are asking each other those questions. To me, that's so disturbing. You know, when, whenever I'm doing this work, I'm like, are we aware that children are talking about mutilating? Like, like a child my age came and asked me if my genitalia was closed. And I said, oh, yeah. And that was actually the, the, the first time I realized, oh, OK, now I know why mommy did that. Because at the age of seven, I care about people playing with me. That was very, that was a priority for me. That was my priority. You know, you're seven. So, and then she said to everybody, oh, guys, we can play with her. And I remember thinking, oh, your mommy did the right thing then. Because the idea of someone not playing with me was worse when I'm that age. So that's, that's really how the process, that's how deep it is where another seven-year-old can come and ask me whether my genitalia, see, I'm here now, I'm hearing a seven-year-old ask another seven-year-old, is your genitalia closed so we can accept you into the group. That is very disturbing. And when we talk about FGM, that's in the context we have to call it out because Mm. that's what's happening. That's the reality. So there's a grooming process that takes place within families. And then now the layer of that is, you know, we're in a patriarchal community that says controlling women's bodies is great. Let's find, let's start at quite young age. So it all comes together. Uh, uh, uh. So it's the process comes from family, you know, from uh, you know the political position you know policy like it's there it's grooming everybody's groomed into this idea because no human being should ever think forget the cutting touching a child's genitalia is okay I don't care who it is boy or girl the idea that we are touching touching children's genitalia it's not acceptable ever and that has traumatic Uh, Devastating uh, uh, outcomes. So, to me, that's that's the kind of trauma I'm talking about, where we made it okay and acceptable to publicly touch girls' genitals and even cut it very publicly. So that's that's the trauma that we, myself and other millions of women, are trying to undo. And
2: and it's intergenerational,
1: and it's passed on. I I cannot tell you. uh, how I feel very strongly about generational trauma because I grew up in the UK and I thought FGM was okay because that was a message passed on by my family. Because that was just, that was just the way things are. If every woman around you is cut, you don't think there's anything wrong with it. But if my school in London told me about my body, I might have said something. Do you see what's missing? Do you see what I mean? It's like, you know, we can, bl- we can blame my family too for this. But the system, if the system gave me the opportunity to learn about my body and my rights, I might have said something. I might have gotten proper support early on in my life. I'm not struggled during my pregnancy and while giving birth. I still hate having a smear test. I literally avoid it. My practice nurse looks out for me on the corridors when I have other appointments to catch me because it really is. It's something that I, I still struggle with because my, my body, you know, Physically, I'm still traumatized by that whole experience.
2: Well, because the most sacred, intimate part of your body is now Absolutely. Site of the most profound Absolutely. trauma, yeah.
1: And not once, it's been attacked a few times. I feel like I was, I was born female and I've been guilty of something where I was violated a few times. And that is, that itself. I know I see to degree, but literally what I am guilty of, I was born female in a world that doesn't feel safe. Yeah.
2: The fact that we're living in a world where 200 million girls and women, Leila, have mm-hmm. experienced exactly the thing that you were describing. Mm-hmm. And again, 3 million girls every year. Oh, and that's Africa
1: alone, by the way. I wanted to correct that. Three million is only Africa alone. We now know the stats. We haven't got, we, we, there are no stats in Asia, but they're already estimating 150 million alone are in Asia, half a million in the US. You know, it's, it's, the numbers are really devastating. Do you know the fact that that's not considered a pandemic? It's part of the trauma, really. The fact that every 11 seconds, a girl being cut is not considered a pandemic the fact it's been ignored is traumatic to someone like me who's who's experienced this it's really traumatic because i'm hearing a message from the world that it's not a big deal that every 11 seconds a girl has been so the message i'm hearing is we're not valuable enough for people to come out and have prevention uh, programs or you know running around going oh my god every 11 seconds a girl I think a calculation I did after speaking at a conference last week for an hour, by the time I, I finished, I think someone said 372 girls have been caught within an hour. That's a lot. 372, and how many will die from that? So many girls have died. You know, how many people will ever hear stories of a seven-year-old or nine-year-old dying from a heart attack? And why wouldn't you die from a heart attack, you know? I'm lucky. The reason I call myself a survivor is because I should have died that day from what I experienced. I should have died from a heart attack. I should have died from hemorrhaging. Like the, I'm actually made it out alive, you know? And the fact it's not considered pandemic, that itself is traumatic. Because yet again, there's a message being sent saying, well, your, your violence is not big a deal to us. And I was sick and tired of gate, gatekeepers. When I say gatekeepers, these are big organizations, directors or you know those civil servants working for the government oh you know let's be very careful you know let's talk to the community leader and you know who the community leader usually is it's a man who's very religious who holds to patriarchal views full stop and really got super exhausted yet again and I remember actually saying at one meeting at the home office stop negotiating our vaginas with these men literally the whole room went silent Because I said, that's what, I got. that's what you're doing right now. You're literally going back to the men in my community and you're negotiating my vagina. That's, that's literally what you're doing.
2: Jesus Christ.
1: And I said, you behaving that way by doing that, you are racist because you would never go and speak to white men about how we protect white women. You wouldn't say, let's talk to the white men leaders, you know, in that particular area. Even though there's an aspect of that in a different way, you know globally but you would never use that term you wouldn't say oh yeah let's deal with rape by talking to the community who are practicing rape I mean so by not treating me like others or not treating my daughter like others to me that's that's racism I want white people to use their privilege and scream and shout about this that's why you're privileged speak about it say it's wrong don't allow it to happen uh so and I think that's where uh uh, there's a lot of confusion when you know people thinking that they're racist no you're racist by not calling this out for what it is especially if you're in a position of privilege absolutely you need to say it it's treat everybody equally that's all i'm asking if i'm at risk of violence i want to be treated i don't want you to go and talk to the the men in my community about it you know if i'm if i'm in trouble and i need help i would like to use the system like another white woman will use the system why is it any difference why are we worried about upsetting people it's it's interesting no one's thinking again it's a victim blaming behavior the victim always comes last so if I'm the victim they're more worried about upsetting those who are my perpetrators that's crazy
0: And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
2: Lola, you, you, you described a moment of having a safe space that, that opened up the kind of translation of what had happened to you from being this thing which had been kind of normalized and and kind of validated by you know your family and the place that you were living into Mm -hmm. suddenly realizing the 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 truth of what had happened to you and there was a transition through um through through being held in a safe space and um I just wondered if you could just tell us a little bit about what, mm. what the kind of transition of your perspective of what happened to you and, and, how, and how that was.
1: Yeah, um, for me, that really started. So I gave birth to my daughter. So the midwife did not once ask me why I have a scar. No one brought it up, literally. She could see I have a scar, but she didn't say, oh, Mrs. She asked me about the scar in my hand. <laughs> but would not ask the scar on my genitalia, did not ask. And then I had a horrible pregnancy. No one's asking what's happened to me. After giving birth to my daughter, I'm, uh, mom, I was having serious problems, like mentally and just really struggling physically. So my mother recommended this uh, clinic called the African Women's Clinic. I didn't even know what they did. So I walked in, uh, I see a nurse called Jennifer Bourne uh, and she said to me, how was your pregnancy? I said, oh my God, it was horrible. I had that condition where I couldn't keep any food in, where I was just puking for nine months. And then she goes, what was the birth? Like I said, oh, I, hate it. I hated it, it was horrible. But the worst part was being vaginally examined. I said, I used to literally, I'll black out, like I would pass out. And obviously when you're, when you're in labor, they have to constantly check how many centimeters you're open. And then that is when I black out and they will wake me up, you know, splash some water on my face. And But no one's asking why I'm blacking out. She's the first person, my daughter's three months at this point, she's the first human being to say, Miss Hussein, and from looking at my notes, I see you're from Somalia. I know they practice FGM. And then she said, can I just check? Because she didn't want to assume. Because she can see my very strong London accent. Because there's an assumption girls in the UK haven't gone through this. Just can I just check if you have undergone FGM my response was oh yeah you know I had not. I didn't have the worst type I'm fine like it's not a big deal so Jennifer really was the first person when she heard that response that created a safe space for me because I'm already clearly saying there's nothing wrong with FGM I have a daughter in my arms alarm bells right so she sat me down and she said, Mrs. Sane, just to let you know, the reason you're having flashbacks. So she took the time to really tell me. It was like the first time I'm 22. She's finally telling me what I've been suffering from, like why I hated being vaginally examined, why pregnancy was such a nightmare, because my body was scared to give birth because I kept thinking, oh, my God, how is anything going to come? out? I mean, even I wasn't close, but the idea of something coming out of my vagina was just too much to bear. So I was in constant anxiety throughout the whole pregnancy. But she explained. So she said, Layla, the first time you had, an, you know, any form of touching like that happened to your genitalia, it was violated. Hence, why your body remembers it. You you suppress the memory, but your body has a way of remembering. Mm. Um, and a, there's a really great book recently that really helped me. The body keeps the score. It's a really good book that really helps you. That really helped me understand the 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 physical trauma I experienced, how that was much connected to my, the physical trauma that I experienced has, is, has much connected to my emotional uh, trauma. And she said to me, every time you lie down, your legs are spread apart and someone's coming at you with a metal or something, instrument, it takes you back. Hence, where you feel like you're about to pass. Even as I'm speaking about it, it always feels like I'm about to pass out. Like it's that kind of feeling, like it all comes back. And she took so she took the time to educate me she invited me back twice to to the clinic she went through the law with me she said if you're under pressure there is support for you and your daughter literally it was so she didn't judge I mean looking back I thought oh my gosh she must have been freaking out when I said this she must be thinking oh my god this is woman going to cut her daughter so I can just imagine now what she was thinking but not once I uh, experienced anxiety from her and it was the first time I learned about the female genitalia because in school, they never taught me. So she had the model showing me everything. And I'm like, oh, I didn't know that bit was there <laughs> because no one's spoken to me about it. So when I say safe space, that's what I mean. Yeah, you know, and, and, and that, you know, that, that experience has been the foundation of all my work. Every aspect I work in for me is like, you know, I work with my colleagues. They're like, okay, Layla's famous last words is it safe is it safe for us to be there is it safe for, to have a conversation is it safe for you to, to be on a panel because for me that's fundamental in order to make drastic changes mm. we need to create a space where we're not judging people however and always it's not you're judging people you can you, you, we have to judge this violence we have to not judging people is a whole different situation but we have to judge practice is you have you would you'd be weird if you didn't judge it so how you define that so my ethos around safe spaces has always been we are going to have very uncomfortable conversation in a safe space because uncomfortable conversation has to happen because mm-hmm. uncomfortable being uncomfortable means you have to shift your thinking a bit meaning we'll come to a place of change so uncomfortable being uncomfortable is fine it's fine as long as so that conversation with me and Jennifer was very uncomfortable but never once I felt I wanted to run out of that room I felt very supported I 100% if it wasn't for Jenny I don't think I think my daughter has been saved literally you know I I think that's the reality of it because if I didn't meet Jenny in those couple of months my daughter might have experienced FGM type one because that was the one that everybody was doing at the time so that safe space is absolutely critical.
2: What you're describing Leila here so profoundly is how when we feel safe, we can allow our trauma or pain to transform quite possi- quite often from something which has no tongue to something which yep. can find language and can articulate mm-hmm. both within our bodies, in our minds, and quite often beyond that into the outside world. and. Mm-hmm. You know what I think that's what you've just described in just the most kind of awe-inspiring way, Layla. You know, and I, I wonder if you could just, you know, um, a little bit more speak to what the kind of internal process was, of, you know, from 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 the weeks and months after you met jenny jennifer who created this safe space to you to the point at which you were stepping into your into activism because that is a huge internal Mm. journey isn't it from a place of being a victim who didn't even understand couldn't even name the violence that happened to her to becoming a global spokesperson for Mm. it and i wonder if you could just tell us a little bit more about that internal
1: journey so the internal process really came in different stages it was Getting having the right support was very important, and Jenny was very, really uh, fundamental at teaching me self-care. Uh, really setting the foundation. You cannot do this work without being supported properly. So I noticed when I went to another place that did not give me that support, I wouldn't stay there for too long because I was so that foundation was set so well. Like I had, you know, regular supervisions, uh, uh, access to therapy a manager she was my to end up becoming my manager someone who supported me you know in my personal life professional life so it was very nurturing which I now take to my leadership role she Mm. really has taught me that a leader is not a dictator (laughs) and um, you know what
2: a good leader empowers
1: that's what a good leader does literally if I could describe her uh, it's it's weird now, now that I'm you know, in a position of leadership, I have a giggle to myself. I'm like, oh my God, I sound just like Jennifer now. Like I remember (laughs) because I know what I needed to hear when somebody was really struggling. So I, I, so it wasn't, so the process was, but you know, one thing I learned from her is to be kind the whole time. Like last week I had a really like busy couple of like very intense days, like to a point where I like even cried. I was so tired. Mm -hmm. I'm a very sensitive person too. So I made sure, uh the weekend there was a bit of dancing because I love dancing it's one of my favorite things so that's me being kind to myself I'm like I don't care I will find 45 minutes where did you go dancing dancing? my living room I have a disco light
2: (laughs) oh my god can I come and join you one night oh my god it's also my favorite thing in the world to do but I yeah
1: oh my god I've done a couple of zoom uh disco zoom with friends (laughs) oh my god literally I'm telling you, Jess, that saved me during lockdown. Because I, right. I love music. I love music. and Saturday night, babe. We're
2: there together. Perfect.
1: <laughs> <laughs> just, Weekend that, So sorted. I'm traveling. I'm traveling Friday. So Saturday, call me. I have my, my disco lights. Travel with me. Oh, my I'm not God, Leila. They travel my speaker and my disco lights. Oh, and I I actually that's said, what I need. <laughs> uh, I All the wrong like, accessories. When, <laughs> when, when, uh, when they were about to do the other lockdown, like... In, in october november time and i left by then and i was like oh my god if they would have done another lockdown i would have ordered like smoke lights or something i said <laughs> you I love know that, that it's, it's gonna get tough
2: <laughs> you're going through going through security at the airport looking in your handbag you've got like a portable disco wherever you go <laughs> disco lights <laughs> smoke machine my speakers horns. so that's what i
1: mean by being kind to yourself yeah. i uh so it's doing things that I like and I and I really make the effort to really name it and say, Okay, Layla, things are getting dark and I say it loud, what are you gonna do? You know <laughs> I'm like I love cooking. So I make the effort that day to cook because I know yeah. when I cook, it gets me out of that funk. And that's what I mean by that's for me what being kind to yourself means.
2: Well, that's been yeah. very helpful. I I understand it even even more after that. Oh, good. So Layla, my love, there's um there's something you touched on earlier, which I would I would just love to kind of talk to you a little bit more if that was okay, which was mm-hmm. um, the role of your dad, your beloved dad, who I know has been yeah. a life-defining loss, losing your dad.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And when we spoke before, you described your dad as your protector.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And I just would love if you could just tell us a little bit. Yeah. A little bit more about
1: that. Yeah. So, you know, he was my first relationship with a man. So I deeply loved him. I remember when I was a kid, I said, I'm going to marry my dad. I always didn't understand the context of that. But for me, he was my first love, you know, the man, first man I loved. And I said, I'm only going to marry my dad. I don't want no other man. Um, and my dad really rescued me from dangerous situations. So I ended up in a very emotionally abusive relationship. Um, but my father really, that was, that was really hard for him. I only realized that years later, because he said, I could see you were in it. But he goes, I couldn't. He goes, I had to, he had to be very strategic on how he took me out of that relationship because I was so in it at the time. I wasn't seeing uh, the bigger picture. And I remember my dad saying to me, Leila, there's a reason why you don't want to go back. There's a reason why. And I just broke down crying and said, I don't want to go back, dad. And he goes, that's it. Because that's what I wanted to hear. You're not going back. so he needed to know that I was on board I was not going to go back and so he was that kind of guy Um, he came to my first event he was really ill when I first got involved in this campaign but I know he made the effort to come and watch Uh, I remember actually one of them he had just had an operation on his chest and I remember he was bleeding while he was sitting in the audience the the blood coming through his chest he knew this was important I was the only woman in the whole room (laughs) And he sat at the front and people said, oh yeah, by the way, Leila Hussein's dad is here. So as soon as they said that, people backed off. So he knew how to use his power to protect me. So when he died, oh my God, I was so angry at him. And this is the part of grief people don't talk about. And I, and, and, and I wasn't in the right environment to even say that because it was like, oh my God, how can you be mad at your father? Like that was the reaction I got from people. And how you even express that you're angry at someone who was ill for three years? He was really sick for three years, hospitalized. you know, he was really ill. Um, but I was angry, and I did not unpack that for a while. And It's still a process I'm going through. Um, i'm'm I'm, I'm doing better in terms of how I deal with grief. I'm not shutting down or pretending it's not happening or avoiding the feelings. I have a network, of group of people that I call, hey, I'm really thinking about this person today. Can we just talk about them? <laughs> that always helps. Uh, yeah, so my dad was very, um, uh, he was very special. And I'm sure everybody says about their own father, but mine was really special. And, and I know his, um, obviously I miss him when I'm doing, when all the good things happen, that's always hard, uh, with, with grief your happiest days can be your saddest days too and I learned to accept that I I prepare myself for that now when great things happen yay we're celebrating and there's like that little bit of oh I wish he was here to see this yeah
2: I just feel you know our experiences of grieving it, it it hyper illuminates everything it 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 make it supercharges the dark and it supercharges the light you know absolutely and quite often they're they're they're, they're they're shining equal and opposite from the same. absolute hundred percent of the same. In, you literally,
1: know? you are as happy as sad at the same time. Like you're so happy, but you can go to a dark place very quickly, very dark. And but I'm learning to be okay with that. That's the reality of it. And I'm I think when you accept it, it's better. You, you deal with it better. It's when you're pretending, you're trying to avoid it. And what it does, I think, when you avoid it, just makes it bigger and bigger and bigger. So now when I'm sad, instead of pretending I'm not sad, I say it out loud. I have friends where I would say, hey, guys, I'm having a bad day today. I'm really sad, but by actually saying it, naming it, acknowledging it, welcoming it, welcome the sadness, Mm. welcome the grief, welcome it. And like one of my, this sounds so weird, one of my favorite, you know, sad days, you know, I I really make it into an event now. (laughs) i I make it into an event. It's like, okay, I see it's coming. I'm not going to push it.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: I wear I wear my lovely Somali kaftan I burn some frankincense. I make some coffee East African coffee I order myself my favorite takeaway I don't want to push myself too much that day I'll have a hot bath so I just do lovely things it's to say uh, darkness I know you're here sadness I know you're here let's uh let's let's, let's 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 just be here I need to go through and the moment I do that it doesn't last for more than four to eight hours, where previously it would last for six weeks, because <laughs> I was spending so much time trying to like not acknowledge it. But but that what? is one lesson I learned.
2: It, it makes me think, Leila, that you know, as much as other people can hold safe spaces for us, we can also hold mm. safe spaces for ourselves.
1: Oh, it's so important.
2: Where we can, you you so can important. just as much as possible, you know, invite in and allow whatever turns up to be there and
1: well I I I learned you cannot facilitate a whole safe space for other people unless you do it for yourself first you literally can't do it because what happens if you don't do that and I noticed from my own experience that you are you're going to end up having a breakdown in someone else's safe space that you've been creating
2: so I just wanted to ask you what does courage feel like
1: Oh, courage. For me, courage is vulnerability. Oh, man. (laughs) Because you know why? We were told that's weak, but actually getting to show your vulnerability. It's for me, courage feels like feeling safe to show your vulnerability. And it's a conversation I'm still having in different spaces to me that's a big that's what courage looks like
2: (laughs) now Leila one of the things that we're doing in this series to to build out a richness of language for this this thing called grief which for too often the language of which too often buckles into the inexpressible we're asking our wonderful guests every week to bring something to the conversation which is in the words of another something whether it be a poem they've read, a piece of advice they've been given, anything at all that for them really articulates this thing called grief. And I was wondering what you
1: wanted to, to bring to, yeah. to us today. There's one pivot to a moment in my life where I heard this person say this, and I always go back to that. And it was what we were talking about earlier. Undergoing FGM, FGM was someone showing me love that's what it was right my family showed me love and I remember watching an episode of Oprah when she talks about uh, the sexual abuse she experienced and she said the biggest lesson she learned in life that love never hurts and I always go back to that love never ever hurts and we live in a society that says, oh love hurts I mean there's like branding in this (laughs) love never because if you love and you know if we think about our children No way in hell we will put him in a position because I love my child so much. The idea of hurting her, it's just the thought of it devastates me. (laughs) So love never hurts. It's one message I always go back to, whether it's in my work, my personal life, with my, you know, just my whole being, you know, my relationships, love never hurts, never hurts. The moment it's hurting, that means it's not love anymore.
2: Can we just have that plastered across the sky, please? <laughs> <laughs> to remind really? everybody on this bloody Literally.
1: planet. <laughs> Pla- but, but, you know, it's, it's, but this is the other grooming, the, you know, l- largest society, they have been groomed in. How many times have you heard people say, but Layla, how many people say, but it's love. It, it hurts, doesn't it? Love hurts. I'm like, no, it doesn't. And hearing that love never hurts. And the moment it starts to hurt, it's no longer love that is one big massive freaking lesson i've learned and i always go back to that whenever i'm in a terrible friendship toxic environment you know a horrible relationship with a partner if love is not the theme i'm out thank
2: you I'm oprah i'm out it's not worth it thank you oprah
1: <laughs> thanks oprah <laughs> i wonder i could tell her this yeah yeah <laughs> but really it's it's uh yeah it's a gem it.
2: It's a gem, a gem of wisdom. Layla Hussain, you are just a force for everything that is good and incredible in this world. And it's just an absolute privilege for us to have had this time with you. And I know that our listeners will feel exactly the same. So on behalf of myself and everybody else, just thank you for all you are, all you do. And for joining us
1: today. Thank you so much, Jess. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed this. Thank you.
2: Now, later to, 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 you know, every, by, in true human tradition, every episode, we ask our guests to dedicate their story and our conversation to a song to play us out. So I just wanted to know today what, what are we going to be playing out with?
1: Well, my number one uh, heroine. Oh my God. I, I feel emotional every time I talk. I feel like she's written songs about my feelings. Kate Bush. I love Kate Bush Uh, breathing breathing I that that's my that's literally (sighs) I I I I remember to breathe every time I (laughs) like I I don't know what it was I mean my both my parents loved music so I was 80s music Motown I was very much embedded in that as a young age I, I didn't even speak English when I fell in love with Kate Bush um but that song, definitely, I mean, I love all her songs, but that song will be my song. So for me, it's about loss. It's about regaining. It's about being okay in acceptance. That's what that song, uh, and, 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 and okay with sadness and loss. Um, so for me, that's, I listened to that song Often.
2: <laughs> oh, Leila, thank you. We love you. Thank you for everything that you are, everything that you do. And thank here we are. So to clear us thank out you so from much. Thank you so much. Absolutely incredible time we've had. Here's Kate Bush with breathing.
0: Outside gets inside Ooh, through her skin.
2: Thank you all so much for listening if you'd like to rate review and subscribe to us on your podcast app then please do and you know the score five stars please if you'd like to come and say hello on instagram and you can find me and all things human podcast related at this is jess mills this podcast was created and hosted by me jess mills with creative co-production by bonnie Teibman and produced by joel porter at dot dot dot